The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This season on DNA ID, a couple shot at a campground, a realtor waylaid at a home showing, a bookstore owner stabbed among her volumes, a young soldier dumped in a parking lot. What do all these tragic cases have in common? They are all cold cases solved after decades of frustration and futility by forensic genealogy. I'm Jess Betancourt, and in Season 2 of DNA ID, I'll bring you 24 more fascinating cases in which the killer eluded generations of investigators until science and some crafty genealogists cracked them at long last. Listen to DNA ID on your favorite podcast platform. New episodes drop every other Monday. You're listening to... The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a mother of three who was so full of promise, but whose course in life was altered by a family tragedy, sending her down a dark path that ultimately ended with her being tossed into a shallow grave. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, Please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me 
forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Dana Smith. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Tracy Jan McClelland was born on April 27, 1970 in Tampa, Florida, parents James and Janice McClelland. Tracy had two sisters, Jamie and Lisa, and a brother, Larry. James and Janice divorced, but stayed on friendly terms. Growing up, Tracy lived in Englewood, Florida, attending high school at Lemon Bay High School, where she was once voted best dressed. While there, Tracy was an active and popular student taking part in the Key Club and Student Council, and she was also on the yearbook staff. She hoped to one day become a teacher, and she graduated from high school in 1989. Following graduation, Tracy attended college at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, majoring in education. It seemed like she was on the path to becoming a teacher as she had always wanted. Then, in 1996, tragedy struck. Tracy's brother Larry took his own life, and Tracy, who was very close with him, took it very hard. It was the beginning of a downward spiral in her life. Tracy's grades suffered, and she battled depression and left school. Although Tracy's plan in life was altered, she wound up finding joy as a mother having three children, two daughters and a son, and she was a doting aunt. But sadly, motherhood couldn't help Tracy stay on a good track, and it was reported that she turned to drugs. According to an article by Tampa 10 WTSP, she began using heroin and crack, as well as painkillers, and according to police, was arrested several times. The article went on to detail how Tracy lived on the streets and squatted at various residences. But despite the battle with her demons, everyone that knew Tracy always said that she never stopped being a kind and caring person, who was always friendly and smiling. In early 2007, Tracy was excited that her sister Lisa was about to have a baby son, and she planned to be at the hospital to witness the birth of her nephew. So when Tracy didn't show up there, Lisa became very worried. She knew that Tracy would have never missed the birth. The last time Tracy had been seen was on February 14th, Valentine's Day, weeks earlier. Tracy had gone to the store in order to get her children presents and candy to celebrate the holiday. After that, she seemed to vanish. While Tracy did drop out of contact for stretches at a time, she never dropped out of sight altogether. On March 6, 2007, the body of an unidentified woman clad only in a denim miniskirt was found in a shallow grave behind the parking lot of a business on North 71st Street in Tampa, Florida. The grave was so shallow that part of the body stuck out of the ground, catching the attention of workers there. The shaken employees called 911, who sent detectives from their homicide squad to the scene. Detectives were initially suspicious of some of the employees who reported finding the body, but they seemed to cooperate, as did the company that was running the construction project. Due to the decomposition and lack of ID found on the body, police had a hard time identifying the woman. It wasn't until the medical examiner tracked the serial number on the dead woman's breast implants that they identified her as 36-year-old Tracy Jan McClelland. To verify that their findings were correct, they injected saline into Tracy's fingertips, which produced usable fingerprints that further solidified that Tracy was indeed dead. Police wouldn't disclose much in the way of details other than to say Tracy died from upper body trauma, the victim of a homicide. 
The news of Tracy's death was devastating to her family. They had always worried that she might wind up in harm's way, and their worst fears were realized. Tracy was buried in Brandon, Florida at Hillsborough Memorial Gardens. In lieu of flowers, Tracy's family asked that donations be made to the Tracy Jan McClellan Children's Benefit Fund. We often hear that victims who live on the edge of society or perhaps battle drug addiction are sort of moved to the back burner as far as police investigations go when they wind up the victim of a murder. However, it seems that in Tracy's case, police were simply focused on catching the killer of the mother of three. Detective Gary Sandell, who had been first on the scene after Tracy was found, told FLA 8 News Tampa that he was looking for people that could help him piece together Tracy's last days, saying, Witnesses, people, not just people that knew of her or were friends with her, but people. If there's anybody out there that knew anything about any conflict she was having or any problems she had with anybody, any leads are going to help me. In the same article, Tracy's sister Lisa asked, Her last hours, the last days, who murdered my sister? Sadly, it's a question that remains unsolved more than 15 years after Tracy's once promising life came to an end in a shallow grave, leaving her children to grow up without a mother and her family searching for answers. If you have any information about the murder of Tracy McClelland, please call the Tampa Police Department at 813-276-3200. Trace's niece, Malia, sat down with me to discuss her aunt's tragic death and the circumstances that led to it, as well as her family's quest for justice. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you obsess over cold cases? Do you go down endless rabbit holes on online forums, searching for clues to solve your pet case? Are you an armchair sleuth? If so, we'd like to invite you to check out our new podcast, Citizen Detective. I'm Mike Morford. I'm Emma Cates. And I'm Dr. Lee Meller. We work hand-in-hand with citizen detectives just like you to examine some of the most puzzling unsolved mysteries out there. Citizen Detective is out right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Citizen Detective. Hi, Malia, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your Aunt Tracy's case with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, before we get into the details about what happened uh, to Tracy, it's a very tragic case, and I'm sure this has affected your family in a really awful way over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about your aunt and what she was like? Yeah, so my Aunt Tracy was honestly one of the nicest women I've ever known. Um, 
I was only 13 when she passed, so a lot of my childhood was spent with her. Um, she had two daughters, one that was a year younger than me and then one that was a few years younger than that, and we were all very close. Um, she would bring her kids over to my house on the weekends, and she would hang out with my mom, and um, us girls would play together. Tracy would take us shopping, and, you know, I wasn't her direct, you know, daughter, but she treated me like one and she was always very kind. She would, you know, take us to the store and she'd say, get whatever you want, girls. Um, her, uh, her daughters, Sarah, the oldest, and then there's Emma, the youngest. Um, their father also had two daughters from a previous marriage and Tracy treated those girls also like they were her own. You know, there were no barriers in that relationship and and all four girls were very close and and you know she would um take all four girls to bush gardens um they would you know all go out to eat together spend weekends together she was also very close with um the other girl's mother um stacy so stacy and tracy they were pretty good friends considering the situation um she was just, you know, such a bright light and such a kind and caring woman. And we all feel such a big hole in our hearts with her gone. You you mentioned she was the mom to, to three kids. Um, was that a big part of her life, being that mother and being an aunt, it sounds like to you uh, as well? Yeah, absolutely. Her Her two daughters and her son, Sergio, were just everything to her. When she had those kids with her, it was, you know, she just was a shining beacon of light. She would do anything for those kids and she just wanted to be the best mom to them. Was she still in the relationship with her father at the time of her death? She was. Um, that Christmas before she passed, she was with him and um, she, you know, they were walking along his property and, and she said, you know, I want to be closer with you guys and with the family. And he, you know, they promised each other that they would speak every single day. And um, they did up until she went missing. They spoke every single day. And was the relationship a good one? I would say so. She she loved her parents. She loved her dad. She was the closest with her dad. Okay. Now, uh, one thing that I think um, perhaps um, it was her sister, is it Lisa? Is Lisa your mom or your aunt? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Lisa is um, my aunt through marriage. I'm not blood related to Tracy. I am um, Sarah and Emma's. Sarah and Emma's father is my uncle, blood related. So Tracy is like my step aunt. Okay. Lisa, I know, has has expressed her opinion, at least, that she felt your that Tracy had gone down a path of being very uh, depressed and upset dealing with the the suicide of her brother and that she felt that she may have turned to opioids to cope with that. Was that something that the family was very concerned with and, and how did that affect her life in that time period? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, I was very young when all of that went down, but from what I've heard is the, the family was all very aware of the situation. Um, everyone, you know, kind of knew what was going on and, and how Tracy was dealing with her depression. And um, our family is, you know, we're, we're no newbies to, you know, addiction, um, at least on, on this side of the family. Um, 
you know, everybody has their struggles and, and, you know, we tried to support Tracy as best as we could with hers. Um, but yeah, she, it, it seemed that she was very depressed with the passing of her brother and, you know, like a lot of people do the opioids, they, they numb your feelings, they numb your, your nerves, they numb your emotions. And, and that's just how some people cope with that type of thing. Was there any indication that it was affecting uh, her personal life as far as what she did daily being a mom and what did she work too? Um, did it affect her work if she did? Yeah. So, um, you know, she was, um, trying her best to be sober. She would have periods of time where she would be clean. And during that time she would dote on her kids, be the best mom, um, and the best partner. Um, but every once in a while she would, you know, her depression would catch up to her and, and she would fall back into that lifestyle. And, you know, she'd, you know, go, go missing for a few days and here and there. And that's just how it went sometimes. Um, but never longer than that, you know, she always was back to her kids when they needed her. And, um, she always knew that she wanted to be with her kids and, and she couldn't stay away from them very long, but, you know, yeah, they did, they did feel that when she was on those periods of time. I want to go back to that day in 2007, and I, I think this is at least what's been reported, but when people first noticed something may have been wrong, and, and this was Lisa who had given birth, she was in the hospital, um, and Tracy didn't show up to visit her, did she immediately, immediately says, okay, something's wrong here, um, and where is she? How did that sort of unfold? And, and did the family in general start saying, you know, we need to look for her? So, yeah, like we said, Tracy had been in contact with her father every single day. And then, you know, after a couple of days of not hearing from her, he spoke to Tracy's mother, Janice, and they decided to um, file a missing persons report. I, you know, I don't know if they really thought anything would come of it, considering Tracy had a history of, you know, going off for a couple days here and there. But um, once they saw that a body had been found a few weeks later, they went to, you know, check and see if it was her and it was her. And, and yeah, I think that was exactly right. I guess that sort of confirmed everyone's worst fears that they found her and something that had happened to her. And obviously Absolutely. being, it, it wasn't like she, had an accident and fell down someplace. This was intentional. She was, she was buried. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about the, how that impact was on the family when you got that awful news? Yeah, it was really quite strange. Um, like I said, I was very close with her oldest daughter, Sarah, and um, Sarah was 12 and I was 13 at the time. And I'm pretty sure it was a, a school day on that day and um, I woke up in the morning and I, I went to my mom's room and I said you know I don't really feel like going to school today and she um, I had not known at the time but she had already gotten the phone call and she said it's okay you don't have to go to school today um, but I would like you to call your cousin and check up on her so we called Sarah and um, Sarah was clearly upset and she said all I want to do right now is come and be with you guys so um, Sarah and Emma both came over to my house that day and we spent the day together and, you know, just trying to be there for my cousins and, and help them through that time. 
And as kids, you know, typically the families will shield them from this kind of stuff or a lot of it, some of the details, maybe stuff that might be hard for them to understand or deal with. Mm -hmm. Was that the case for the younger, you know, her daughters for you? Did they try and keep you guys sort of in the dark as far as some of the awful details about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We were pretty young and, and, um, you know, they tried their best to, you know, tell us just enough so that we weren't worried, but, you know, not so much that we were traumatized, but, you know, you can't keep everything a secret. And, and we, Sarah and I were pretty interested in, um, you know, spying on the family and seeing what everybody's up to. So we were kind of mischievous kids as it was. Um, so we knew more than I think the adult thought we knew. Um, and yeah, there, there did, there was a lot to that they did to try and, um, shield the girls and, and Sergio, I'm sure as well. Um, but you know, Sarah's smarter than they, they, they must have thought because she, you know, would tell me all these things and I just, my mind would be blown at how, how much she knew of the adult world at such a young age. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I, I think someone might hear this news and then the shock, you know, that once that wears off, they're like, okay, so-and-so did this. I know they need to check out so-and-so. Was there any accusations or any suspicion of anyone in, on your family's part of anyone? Did they tell police you need to look at this person or that person? And you don't have to name them if there is anyone like that. Um, I think there were maybe a couple of people that, you know, pe- you know, you automatically go, oh, well, she fought with this person. So check this guy out. Um, nothing ever came of it, obviously, um, because her case is still considered a cold case. Um, and to be honest, I don't know that many details on the investigative side of it. Um, it's been, uh, 15 years at this point. And, um, I know her youngest daughter, Emma is working with detectives as closely as she can, but I know that, um, due to backlogs of DNA testing and and underfunding, they aren't able to get to her mother's uh, DNA testing that they have to do that the forensic side of it. So there's not a whole lot. um, We're kind of at a standstill at that point was the last that I heard. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you know if if there is any DNA evidence in the case, as far as you know? I believe so, because that seems to be um, what we hear consistently from the detectives, is that 
they don't have the funding to run the DNA forensics that they need to run in order to progress with the case. So it seems like there is some DNA there that needs to be handled, but they just can't get to it. Yeah, maybe fundraising or something like that is a, is a way to help. Uh, I don't know if they can take yeah, absolutely. contributions or donations, but if if you went to them and said, hey, I understand the budget is a concern here, but we're willing to fundraise, I wonder if they'd be open to that to help you know, pay for that. Yeah, it's definitely something we want to look into. And uh, I'm curious, you know, looking back as an adult now and, and knowing more about, you know, the, this from the perspective as a, of an adult, um, do you think that police didn't um, take this case seriously? I mean, I don't want to point fingers and tell people that they're not doing their job correctly. I'm sure that there are multitudes of things that I just don't understand about the task force and things of that nature. Um, but you do get that stereotypical, well, she was a junkie. She was, you know, working the streets that night. You know, what can you do? These types of cases happen all the time and they constantly get thrown to the side and, oh, well, nobody's ever going to care about this case because she would go missing anyway. And they must have known that this would eventually happen, that kind of thing. So there's always that kind of bias that I feel is very real. And, you know, I'm sort of thinking back now, um, do you see anything with, you know, looking back that where you have questions or things that you need to be resolved that your family's hoping you'll get some kind of answers for? Obviously, who did it and, and that part of it, but is there anything that still unresolved with the, the clues that there are? I mean, you know, obviously the, the whodunit part, but also the why. I mean, I think that's a big, a big point. Um, she was, it was upper body trauma. That was what they found. And that always seems to point to some sort of, um, I, you know, crime of passion sort of thing. And we, a lot of us speculate that it was someone she knew and someone she must have had a relationship with, whether it was a friend or, you know, someone she worked with or you know who knows but we we think it was someone she knows and we just want to know you know why would someone do that to someone who had so much family that loved her obviously knowing who did it why and holding them accountable is uh, in something that i think would definitely be important i would like to ask you again i know you said you don't know a lot about the investigation but where is the actual investigation the dna part obviously needs to be done with the investigation itself, where does that stand right now? Honestly, I, I'm not sure. I can get more details from her daughter, Emma. They, they She's the one that works directly with the detective. Um, and I hear mostly from Emma through her sister, Brianna. So um, I can get with Emma and see just how much she knows on the investigation and get back to you. But I, I honestly am not quite sure about that. Okay. I know it has not really progressed a whole lot since it was initially opened. That's, I do know that. Okay, and I obviously understand that. Um, I am curious uh, to know there there were uh, some indications that this was a work site, a job site, construction site, whatever you want to call it, of some sort mm -hmm. where, where she was left. And I know police looked at several people related to a work crew there. Any idea if any 
suspects were developed there or anyone that was questioned that was a promising suspect as far as you know? Um, The workers never were really um, someone that, as far as I'm aware, someone that the family was interested in. I don't think um, they were much too concerned with the people who worked at the street sweeping company. Um, I think it was maybe just someone who frequented that area and uh, just knew where the patch of dirt was, where the gate was, how to get through it. Um, I think it was just because Stacy, or I'm sorry, Tracy, was staying relatively close by in that area. And so she was walking around that area all the time. And it must have been somebody that just knew the area well. So not necessarily anyone connected to the work crew there, but just because the location was close to where she was known to be. Right. I mean, you know, you never actually know. It could be someone who worked there. Um, That's, you know, always good to keep your options open. But at the time, I don't think the family, the immediate family is too concerned with that. And I know, um, you know, obviously people were looked at that knew her people on that work crew were looked at um, were people inside the family questioned and did they ever feel like they're, you know, hurt that they were maybe being looked at as suspect. Obviously the police have to rule them out first and then work out from there. But did, did that ever affect the family in a way that, Hey, they think we may have had something to do with this. Um, not as far as I know. Um, maybe, a couple past boyfriends. I, I don't think so though. Other than like no immediate family members, maybe, um, like I said, a couple of ex-boyfriends maybe, but Mm. not that I know of. Well, I I sort of want to look at the void that this left. Obviously it sounds like you were very close. You know, she had three children, um, what has been the the void that's been left by this and, and by her being taken? And how has that sort of affected the families as far as their lives or, you know, the things that are missing out on that kind of stuff? Well, I know um, I am much more close with the girls than I am with Sergio. Um, the girls and I are blood related and, and little Serge is um, through a separate marriage. Um but I know for a fact that the girls are very sensitive when it comes to the topic of their mother. Um, Sarah has, you know, had some struggles in her life where, you know, you're a teenage girl and you're going through these things and you just want your mom to talk to and and she's not there. So, um, and I'm sure Emma went through the exact same thing. And do you think they miss out sort of on, um, certain things, you know, maybe having kids of their own, getting married, things that they would have liked to have shared. What what things do you think they, they miss out on the most? Absolutely. So I know Sarah has three kids now and, and Emma also has um, had children. And I mean, I can only imagine that they just want, they just wish that their children had their grandmother and and how they can probably see Tracy in maybe certain faces or certain mannerisms that they see in their own kids. And I can only assume it makes them miss, miss her so much more. Um, 
and I just know what a great grandmother Tracy would have been and, and maybe some advice that she would have given her kids along the way of life that, you know, the sort of thing where it's like, Hey, I've been down this road and here's why you don't need to go down it. You can learn from my mistakes. And, and, you know, it's good to have that in your life. And for, you know, it's very sad that those girls just didn't have that. Did they wind up living with Sergio? Obviously this left the, the family sort of shattered and, and their family dynamic. Yeah. How did that work out? Did they wind up living with him? So they went to live with their aunt Lisa and their grandmother Janice. Um, they raised the girls after Tracy was gone and, um, yeah, they've remained close with the family and and thank God for Lisa and Janice for taking the girls in. I mean, obviously, that's exactly what you would do, um, but it's good that they had the family support to fall back on. And, and um, yeah, they, I'm pretty sure that Sarah and Emma still live out in Dover, not far from their grandmother and their aunt. And, you know, they have a huge family. Um, I'm on their father's side, so... You know, we're, we're a huge family, and we're all always here to support one another. Well, it's good to have, and when a tragedy strikes like this, it's good to have as many people that can sort of help or be there for each other to, to get through something like this. Absolutely. So I am curious, Do you, as far as you know, are there any websites, social media, anything set up devoted to getting more attention for the case? Or, as I mentioned earlier, maybe doing some kind of fundraising for rewards or for DNA work, that kind of stuff? So I know around the time shortly after it happened, one of Tracy's really good friends set up a website um, for her. I don't know if it is still active. Um, There really hasn't been a whole lot since the initial case. Um, We kind of have just started to really be like, you know what, we need to get this back into the media, back into the news, um, you know, back into people's, televisions and and spread the word you know let's let's reignite this case and see what we can make happen out of it um so i think we're starting that process all over again now and i think that you know we are going eventually to try and set up some websites and some fundraising i think that that's the next step that we are trying to take well hopefully that goes good and you do get some attention for the case um and more people are aware of it and they share it. And hopefully if anyone out there listening has any information about the case, they'll do the right thing and uh, go to the authorities, provide a tip, whatever the, the case may be. Um, you know, it's been a long time and I'm sure your, your family would be thankful for anyone coming forward that if it helps solve the case. Yeah, absolutely. I know all three of her kids would just, you know, have uh be grateful just to be able to close that chapter and and have some finality on it. Well, we'll do our part to definitely keep the case out there and get the word out there. And you know, I appreciate you coming on, Malia, to help share uh, Tracy's story with us. I really appreciate you interviewing me and taking the time. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.